I'm so glad to see you guys. Blessings to you, Gregory House South, Gregory House North. What we're going to do today, we're going to build on uh, what we did when I was here last week, talking about uh, the way in which um, theology renders service to the church. It's, it's that sacred office given by the Lord distinctly to the church. Wherever else theology is done, it's the church's office. Um, and how theology um, serves the church in terms of her very life and mission, her confession. Um, and then last time we were together, we talked about um, um, reality in Jesus Christ. As Bonhoeffer would say, there's one reality and it's the Christ reality. So we talked about one element of that um, reality in Christ with respect to knowledge of God. It's actually Jesus Christ that puts that holy name of Father, Son, and Spirit on our lips and in our hearts. And so um, no one knows the Father but the Son and the power of the Spirit. And whoever um, the Son deigns to bring into that holy relationship actually open up the very bosom, the heart of the Father to us. And so we come to know who God is in the very face of Jesus Christ, apart from whom, you know, over his head or behind his back, there is no God to know. He, he brings the Father and the power of the Spirit to bear upon us. And so I want to build on that today with two parts, I'm talking about reality in Christ, knowledge of humanity. That's what we're going to talk about now. And then later today, we'll talk about reality in Christ's knowledge of the world. So let's pray and off we'll go. We'll talk about reality in Christ's um, knowledge of humanity here. Let's pray with me if you would. The Lord be with you. Living Lord Jesus, our faithful and true high priest, we come as you've bid us to in the generosity of the Father. You bid us to come to you and learn from you. And you've promised us that your that your yoke uh, is light and easy and good. And so we ask that you would bear us up in your holy hands and, and envelope us in the very bosom of the Father and his holy paternal love for us and teach us all that it means in you to be true sons and daughters of the Father in the communion of the Spirit. Do that, we pray, and I pray that you would continue to not only inform, certainly inform, but much more than that, that you would transform us, that you would renew our minds as we commune with your holy mind, and that you would do a redemptive, a deep and holy redemptive work in our affections, uh, in our volitional life, the way we choose, what we think is beautiful, what we, what we deem ugly and rightly so. I pray that you would do a res restorative work in our imaginations so that we can love and cherish that which is good and beautiful and true. Do this, we pray, this very moment. We pray that you would be with us and we would do theology with you uh, before your very face, Coram Deo, before your very face. Uh, and I ask that you would um, bring us up, Lord Jesus Christ, into the mysteries of the gospel and give us a knowledge and an understanding the way Paul talks of the mystery, which is you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that, we pray for us. Bless us. Uh, make us, in the noblest sense of the term, happy people. And to you, Father, Son, Spirit, be all glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So you guys, reality in, Jesus, reality in Jesus Christ with respect to humanity, having already talked about what it means um, for Jesus to open up the life of Father, Son, and Spirit to us. Let's press on and talk about humanity. To do that, I want to get at it. <clears throat> Let's start here. There are a number of forces at work 
in our contemporary culture that influence the way we think about what it means to be human, right? Human life, human experience. They inform uh, how we think about who we are, why we're here, what ails us. Have you ever met anyone that says, this is um, as good as it can get. The world is just as it should be. How do we answer and, and discern what it is that ails us uh, and how these things might be remedied? Think about some, some of the salient for forces at work here. And by the way, they're for better and worse, right? Um, we want to think about what's gained and what's lost and all of these. But we're a technological culture, highly technological culture. Um, it's not a matter of whether technology is good or bad. It's a matter of um, how it shapes and influences us, given that we're not isolated people that act upon things without those things acting upon us as well. So we're a technological culture that first and foremost values technique. That's how you master it. That's how you, that's how you master a technological culture. And so we're methodologically infatuated. We're transient people, right? With that comes lots of opportunities, but a sense of rootlessness as well, right? And loneliness and isolation, almost epidemic now in our culture. We're bureaucratic, we're media saturated. We're individualistic, we're consumeristic, so on and so forth, just to name a few of those more prominent features. So whatever these things can give us, we don't want to be blind to the sense that what they, what they do is they tend to undermine and reduce and depersonalize and thin out, if you will, thin out uh, a robust understanding of the glory of what it means to be a human being made in God's image. I want to press into that today. The opening line of John Calvin's Institutes reads like this. First line, nearly all the wisdom we possess, anything that's true of that word, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts. It's twofold, right? Two elements of this. He says knowledge of God. That's what we talked about last time we were together. And knowledge of ourselves. There's a reciprocity. That's what Calvin's getting at. There's a reciprocity to know God is for God to open up right and true self-knowledge. Calvin goes on to say, yet, however, the knowledge of God and of ourselves may be mutually connected. The order of right teaching, right thinking, right believing requires that we discuss the former first, knowledge of God, and then proceed to the latter. Calvin's point is something like this. We never want to think, okay, I get it, right? God needs to reveal himself to us. But me, you know, having known myself by way of self-analysis, you know, self-observation, feedback from loved ones and so on, me having a self-knowledge, I just kind of go and meet God half the way. We introduce ourselves to one another. Nice to meet you. Let me tell you who I am. Calvin says, not at all. Not at all the case. It's actually God's self-knowing that grounds his revelation to us. And that's so pastorally important, right? God has no blind spots. His infinite knowledge of himself. There's no shadow in him. That being the case, that God knows himself perfectly, infinitely. He reveals himself truly to us. His self-knowing is the ground of his self-disclosure. And his self-disclosure is the ground of our self-understanding. Does that make sense? That's, that's strange, strange to modern's ears. We don't tend to think like that at all. We think that we know, we know each other. Often, what we'll actually think is to really know oneself, you have to know oneself, and not only in isolation from God, but often in terms of isolation from the other. 
And then once we get self-knowledge, then we can actually engage with the other. We don't tend to think that we, we come to a knowledge of self communally. But Calvin's point here, good one. Um, the right order of teaching, thinking, knowing, believing, the right order of faith is that with knowledge of God is provided for us knowledge of self. His point that we want to grapple with is that human life isn't self-explanatory. Um, we're deep, deep waters. <laughs> human life isn't self-explanatory. Karl Barth would say it something like this. Human beings are parenthetical statements. They're like parenthetical statements. And you guys are literary. You know what that means. Parenthetical statements, when they're embedded in a paragraph, let's say, actually punctuate the paragraph and bring meaning. But a parenthetical statement removed from that paragraph is a piece of absurdity, right? The dress was blue. What on earth does that mean by itself? Right? Can't, can't get at it. Bart says, we are like parenthetical statements apart from the context of self-knowing, which is knowledge of God. And we'll get at what that means in terms of the community of the faithful, too. But really important to get at. Apart from this, we're perplexing oddities. And you see this in our culture all the time. I'm going to read you a quote from Mark Twain. It's beautiful. It's, well, it's beautiful and it's tragic. But it's what, what you might call elegant error. It's the kind you, you, you really want. It's really poignant. He, he models this for us. He writes this at the end of his life in his autobiography. It reads like this. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them and infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them. And the joy of life is turned into aching grief. At length, ambition is dead. Vanity is dead. Too tired for it. Longing for release is in their place. And he says, it comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift Earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake, a failure, a foolishness. Ooh. He's bearing witness to um, his own sense of being a parenthetical statement, a piece of absurdity, not rooted in that knowledge of God by which comes self-understanding, right? But more to the point with that is a true sense of significance, value, dignity. He's bearing witness, um, sadly, tragically, um, that that's not something he knows. So let's press in. Let's keep going. That's the context. By the way, we always want to do theology situated in our, in our context, right? So it's, it actually speaks and proclaims to the world and gets a sense of um, what ails the world, how the gospel is a, a balm to the world. Let's press in a little bit. The most, two of the most, at least, at least um, among the most prominent and influential non-Christian anthropologies that we deal with in our culture are Gnosticism and naturalism. I want to talk about those and let those be a foil for us as we talk about Christian anthropology, what it means to have a knowledge of humanity. Both of these are alive and well today, to say the least. And both of them constitute elements of what Paul calls the spirit of the age. Paul says we're not to conform to the spirit of the age, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. There aren't a lot of options in between. The spirit of the age is 
prevailing and really powerful, right? The power is another way scripture talks. Um, to not be rooted in Christ Jesus and be transformed by the renewing of our mind makes us, um, to say the least, in a perilous position about being swept away with the spirit of the age. Gnosticism and naturalism are a piece of that. Gnosticism, you guys probably know a lot about, about it or some about it. Gnosticism emerged in the first century, an eclectic collection of sects and different doctrines, and it was an enormous threat to the early church. If you're, if you're reading the New Testament, you see lots of, um, lots of um, pushback against Gnosticism. Gnosticism is rooted in a matter-spirit dualism, right? Um, physicality, bad. Matter, bad. That which is spiritual and of the spirit relative to matter, good. And it's rooted in much of, you'll find that much of ancient Hellenistic thought, Greek thought. Gnosticism viewed the material, physical realities of the world as a contradiction or a hindrance to the spiritual. So early Gnostics looked askance at Christians who talked about God incarnate, the crucified God, the resurrection of the body is our hope to be, to be um, saved in one sense, right, to ourselves, to be moved from not only alienation from God, but self-alienation. God graciously in bringing us to himself gives us, gives us back to ourselves, dignifies us, value, uh, gives profound significance and value to us. And our hope is to be, our hope is the resurrection of the body, right? Life eternal embodied. To Gnostics, this is incredibly bad news and odd, odd news. That being the case, Gnostics looked askance at all kinds of orthodox teaching and practice and, and cultivated what we might call a privatized spirituality for the elites. The basic conviction, the basic conviction is a stark opposition between material and, and physical. Bodily things are inferior to non-bodily things, right? Um, your, interior, your interior self is far superior to your physical self, right? So there's, a, there's not just a distinction, that's a good thing to have, but there's a separation, there's an antagonism between bodily and non-bodily aspects of what it means to be a human being. The body is a prison house of the soul, and so what we're looking for, Gnostics are looking for, is redemption from the body, right? The body's a hindrance to, um, to our flourishing. This is really resilient, and it, it, and it kind of morphs and, and moves in our culture, and modernity, the context in which we live, Gnosticism is thriving, and just thriving. Neo-Gnostics are more earthbound, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, it, it capitulates to the, the, the spirit of this age, um, the secular spirit, which, which, which pushes things earthbound. And you see that in neo-Gnostics too, but the family traits are really telling. You guys will, I think, notice them. Ancient Gnostics tried to escape the world of matter for purely spiritual existence. Modern Gnostics try to escape the world of the mundane for purely pleasurable Existence. Does that resonate with you guys? That's so much of um, what, what, uh, what, what we're, we're taught and what we hear and what we're taught to value in modernity, just that. 
Ancient Gnostics tried to escape their physical bodies for, for perfected spiritual beings, to become perfected spiritual beings. Modern Gnostics try to escape our bodies to become uh, our God-given bodies, to become perfected bodies. The computer-generated things you see around you, the Photoshop things, virtual bodies that are paraded before us all the time. There's a huge push, right? If you look at how we spend our money, for instance, there's so much of that, um, the, the perfection of the body. Ancient Gnostics embraced an anti-material essentialism, you might call it, um, to seek the true God within. More earthbound neo-Gnostics, modern Gnostics, embrace a psychological or therapeutic essentialism to seek the true self within, which, which is often, often um, at odds, you know, or with, you know, comes with a feeling of um, alienation of the body that we have, the true self within, the, the, the body being a hindrance to that. What you find with old and new Gnosticism is a kind of vague, malleable spirituality. It gives, it, it, it serves self-invention, right? Fleeing anything um, out here that might critique and lay a lordly claim upon that which is within. That's, that's a that's core to Gnosticism, old and new. The gospel speaks to that big time. Give me a minute and we'll press into that. But let's, let's talk about naturalism as well. Gnosticism and naturalism. Naturalism is much newer. You see roots of it um, long ago, but it's, it really comes to a fore in modernity. It too insists upon a stark opposition of spiritual material. So that, that is part of our age, whether it's Gnostic or naturalistic, it's a pulling apart of reality. Does that make sense? What are we going to find in Jesus Christ? Creator, creation at one in him, time and eternity at one, the spiritual and the physical at one in him, among other things. The gospel is going to speak to this, but outside of the gospel, the spirit of the ages, in one way or another, putting in opposition spiritual material things. Naturalists hold materialism as your basic conviction so that there's a denial of anything that can't be reduced to mere material physical existence because matters all that there is matters all that matters. Right? And so that's a, that's a cosmological um, materialism. Um, we exist in a closed universe. Um, we are the products of purely material processes, even what you love, what you desire, you know, those, those types of things, they're all rooted in the way your synapses fire under the conditions in which you find yourself. They're all rooted in prior physical um, promptings. There's nothing outside of that that's real. If it, if it can't be reduced to the material, it's not real. <clears throat> I would never want you to think that this is anti-religious, though. I want you to listen to this. The Humanist Manifesto, I'm going to quote from it. The Humanist Manifesto, which is a naturalist document, talks about itself in religious terms. Godless religion, to be sure, but talks like this. What the Humanist Manifesto wishes to offer is, quote, a new statement of the means and purposes of religion, a religion that's safe for modernity. It goes on to say, the, com the complete realization of human personality is the end of man's life. Let me repeat that. 
The manifesto finds, quote, the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. So quality and quantity of life, that utopian vision is what salvation is, right? That's the gospel and that's the vision of the kingdom for naturalism. Though we consider, it goes on, the religious forms and ideas of our predecessors no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. That's, that's what naturalistic religiosity looks like in our age, and it takes the form of a spirit of the age. Does that resonate with you guys? Quality and quantity of life as the thing, the quest for the good life, the central task to which we've been given. All the while, right? He or she who seeks to gain their life will lose it. When you think about why is it that anxiety, discouragement, lack of resilience, all of those things are so prominent in our culture? Because it's just as true as gravity is that he or she who seeks to gain their life will lose it. Right? Material naturalism says the, the central quest for mankind is just that. Sophie, did you want to ask a question? Yeah. Um, I was wondering, so in like when I'm doing evangelism lately or doing a lot of reading, when I'm doing evangelism lately or doing like a lot of reading and trying to figure out where the culture's at, I was wondering if you resonate with this too. It seems like there's um, increasingly a lot less of the I really resonate with this, like the quest for the good life is the central task for mankind in my secular friends. Yeah. But I feel like the materialist underpinning is really going away fast in like millennials and Gen Zers and younger. Yep. Um, and they're moving more towards maybe almost even a classical Gnosticism or a more ancient Gnosticism because of all of the like new age pinnings. Like every store I go into now is selling crystals and yep. um, talking about horoscopes and like, every store has elements of that. Um, do you resonate with that as true, that we're moving away from this? Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think materialism, like New Ageism, right? On the face of it, it'd be so different, right? But really, they're both kind of monisms. One, one's a, a Unitarianism of the material, and one's a Unitarianism of the spirit. They both resonate demographically with, you know, middle class, upwardly mobile, um, you know, relatively, their, their perception is self-sufficient folks. It doesn't gain any traction with, um, you know, Southside Chicagoans. It just, it, that, that's not where people are at. Um, but I do think, when you're talking about a new generation um, that has all kinds of challenges um, financially, you'll see some of that. You'll see some of that going away. So the quest for the good life is going to look very different, or, or, or considerably different than it has for the, the last couple generations. Um, do you guys know who Mark Sayers is? You know who that is? He does a podcast. What is it called? This Cultural Moment. It's really good. He talks a lot about that. What kind of, you know, Starbucks, um, you know, latte spirituality looks like for moderns. This generation was really cool. But there's, it's, it's still that, it's still that quest for the good life, but it's, it's, it's morphing and its values are morphing. The spirit of the age is dynamic, right? It's yeah. almost more like idealism, monism, instead of materialist yeah. monism? Okay, yeah. thanks. Mm -hmm. can, I say, can I say one more thing about that? Where, where um, naturalists in prior generations would say, you know, we're really subject to nothing but the laws of nature. 
Right, and they're impersonal, and you know, they're, by the way, have, have no intentionality. And where there's no intentionality, there can't be artistry, right? So, it, so it really, in terms of the, even the aesthetic of the world for this, it, it looks, it's, it's bleak. Um, but we're moving away from that too. So we think that the, the laws of nature, if you will, which is really just the, the consistency of the way God upholds all things, right? Um, but the, but, but with, with naturalists, with, with more recent naturalists, these things are too malleable. Does that make sense? So, so we're bucking all kinds of things there. I want to give you a quote from Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was one of the framers of the Humanist Manifesto. He's, he's, wow, he's really something. By the way, he was in the humanities department with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis knew him well. They worked together for years at Oxford U. Uh, he wrote a book called The Free Man's Worship. Now, he's a, he's a materialist. He's one of the like, really consistent, noble, if you will, materialists of the 20th century. And so this is, this is what he says about this. And I want you to hear the, hear the bleakness of it. If you have the stomach for it, they did a biography um, special on him. You should watch it. It's really something. But this is the way he talks. Quote, that man is a product of causes that had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collocution of atoms. That is bleak, isn't it? How oppressive would that be? So hear it, not just to say, gosh, that's, you know, that's not true. Hear it pastorally, how profoundly um, abysmal and dim, that is. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. The grave gets the final say, and everyone's moving inexorably toward it. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. That's cheery, eh? But more to the point, is it true? All these things, he says, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand only, listen to this, man, this is eloquent error here, only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. We sing, right, how firm a foundation? Fanny Crosby was his grandmother or great-grandmother, by the way, the pietist, right? She was Bertrand Russell's great-grandmother. Maybe grandmother, check me on that. Um, he's bringing hymnody in here because he's talking about a free man's worship. How firm a foundation, what? Unyielding despair, he says. Only there can the soul's habitation henceforth be built, end quote. That's grim. Now, when he says unyielding despair, can, can you see, in a, in a kind of materialist understanding of the world, can you see something like um, our culture, even a culture's fiscal, you know, a culture that's fiscally well-to-do and, and moneyed and, and has opportunities, can you see what unyielding despair looks like? It doesn't look like, you know, this. He's not talking about that. What does unyielding despair look like? It looks like manifold addiction to um, 
a utopianism that values above all things the quality and quantity of life in the here and now and sets that as the goal, the vision of the kingdom, a gospel, right? It's a gospel of unyielding despair. Let's talk about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it deals with and how it speaks to humanity, that gloriously good news in this context, because this is the context in which we live. Now, before we do one last thing, and I want you to see this when we talk about the spirit of the age, Gnosticism, neo-Gnosticism and materialism, their their primary value is seeking life in the self. That is what's just the thing in our culture, seeking life in the self. Modern Gnosticism and naturalism are vastly different in terms of how they view the spiritual materials and we're going to, the spiritual material. We're going to see that come together in our Lord Jesus Christ. But both inhabit what Charles Taylor, who is one of the foremost uh, interpreters of the secular age, he says is the main feature of our secular age. He calls it the eclipse of all goals and all claims that transcend self-styled notions of human flourishing. So whatever, whatever we're doing in modernity, he says the prevailing um, spirit of modernity is that all things have to be brought down to subserve mere human flourishing. Right? Even, if it, even if it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the payout is its therapeutic advantages or something like that, right? Anything that transcends mere human flourishing, um, Taylor says, is, um, is out of step with the spirit of this age. David Bentley Hart says this, this, is, this is kind of the default religion of modernity. He calls it this, the narrow service of the self, the impulses of the will, the nothingness, that is a withdrawal, that is all the withdrawal of Christianity leaves behind. And so his point is this, in a culture where um, the gospel is receding, and if nature pours a vacuum, and it does, then what does the new religiosity of the spirit of the age look like in, in all the forms that it tends to take? A narrow service of the self. Does that make sense? Um, that which, that which, that which um, puts human flourishing uh, as the primary goal, uh, which eclipses everything else. By the way, it still still has some of the uh, some of the markings, some of the echoes of um, the Christian faith in a culture like ours, but puts them to different services. In other words, this secular age that we live in isn't non-religious. It's not anti-religious. What it is is um, a culture that wishes to push beyond the impress of the Christian faith, and it looks like the things we were just talking about. The present principalities and powers, the spirit of the age, is such that even religions so different as Gnosticism and naturalism both have that same kind of vortex sentiment that you'll see played out in our culture like this. They both do this. See if this resonates. One's ultimate authority is oneself. Institutions, external authorities should be distrusted. Personal inclinations, personal aspirations, personal narratives should not. You find that in Gnosticism and, and naturalism. The highest goal, the highest good is individual freedom. Self-understood, right, according to one's self-definition. Traditions, generational wisdom, time-shaped social structures that impede the pursuit of that good have to be deconstructed, deeply reshaped, deeply rethought or destroyed and discarded altogether. And the world improves 
when all these things happen and when there's an advance in individual autonomy so that the, the cardinal social virtue is tolerance of all of these things, right? The inability to critique anything with a, with a, Lord, with a transcendent lordly claim from without. Uh, a commitment to be unbeholden to that. Gnosticism and naturalism both do that. However vastly different they are, what you see is a bringing together of the spirit of our age. They serve this, that same goal. This is the context in which we want to be talking and proclaiming the good news. Mark Twain and Bertrand Russell don't sound like they have good news. It does not sound like good news, right? What's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel? We are the image of God in Jesus Christ. We don't have the image, not like this, right? We don't have the image that it can be set down. It's not external to us. We are the image of God. What it means to be human and what it means to be the image of God are synonymous, coterminous. Look with me at Genesis 1. I want you to see, I want you to see this. And I have in your notes here, living forward. Remember last week, or last time we were together, we talked about um, you must live forward, but you have to understand backward. And the whole life of Israel is that way. The life of the early disciples is that way. Your life is that way too. You're living this way, and sometimes it even seems very circuitous, but you understand life this way. It's Kierkegaard's insight, and it's magnificent. Look how scripture is the same way. Look at Genesis 1. Now, you guys, you know that repetition is a important literary device, let's say that, right? Where you see things repeated often, you'd say, whoa, that's, I, should, I should listen up, my ears should perk up, this is important. Let's start in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 20, and listen for that phrase, according to their kinds, how important it is, and, and the, the, the literary heavy lifting it does here. And God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. What's the measure of these creatures? Themselves. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. By the way, there's intentionality and there's artistry. Artistry is rooted in intentionality. When, the way Bertrand Russell talks about the world, there's, it's a random collocution of atoms. That's an ugly world. Or that's a world where you can't even perceive the beauty of it. If you, if you watch his biography, you'll see it, how, 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 how dim and abysmal it is. And God saw that it was good. There's, there's divine intentionality, and this is full of artistry. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There's a rhythm here. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts on the earth, on the earth beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And so it was. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. That's eight times so far in five verses. That's repetition, yes? All in, all in service of this. And then God said, let us make man according to their kind? No. 
let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What's the measure of a fish? A fish. A bird? A bird. What's the measure of a beast of the field? A beast of the field. What's the measure, the true measure of a human being? God. Does that make sense? That's the heavy literary lifting that's going on here. Genesis, by the way, is a man, it's a piece of literary artistry. It's amazing. Human beings aren't um, separated from uh, other creatures, right? That, that kind of um, solidarity we of creaturely existence we have, and there is a solidarity there. We're not, we're not differentiated by degree. We're differentiated by kind. It's categorical. It's not just quantitative. It's qualitative. The way Bertrand Russell talks says, Here, here's a really low bar for you, <laughs> right? Human beings are accidental, and they're just, um, they're just language beasts. You know, there's differentiation, but they're, at the end of the day, they're just beasts like anything else. And then we live to that. We live down to that. We are the image of God. The true measure of a human being can only and ever be God. Only and ever be God. There's a really important hermeneutic there for thinking about the world. Now, here's the issue we want to think about. Genesis 1, we're living forward, right? If human beings are made in the image of God to bear God's image, and not only bear God's image, but then be God's image, let us make, let us make man, male, and female together in our image, and then have dominion over and do this and do this. So bearing and being God's image, they go together. So if all that it means to be human is to bear God's image, what about God is human? We're not Aryans, so we'd never say something like, there was a time when the sun was not. There was no time when the sun was not. Was there a time when the sun wasn't incarnate? The baby boy of the Blessed Virgin. Well, of course there was. Prior to the incarnation, what about God as human? Absolutely, categorically, nothing. Now, there's lots you can still say in Genesis 1 about what it means to bear God's image. But we're still living forward. Does that make sense to you guys? We're still living forward. There's a whole bunch that we can't say yet because that's a, that, that, that issue is answered canonically throughout the whole of Scripture. So we're living forward and living into that. And then when we get to the revelation of Jesus Christ, right, the one who is true and full, truly, fully divine, God with us, what you're getting there is that one who is at the same time truly and fully and authentically human. He manifests God humanly. So let's look at that. Let's look backward now, understanding backward. Go to Colossians 1 with me. I'm going to start reading in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 15. I'll read through verse 19. Listen really closely, and I want to unpack this a little bit. He is, he being, of course, the Lord Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the icon of, of uh, the otherwise invisible God. We might say, 
Jesus Christ is the sacrament of God. That's who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the incarnate one, by the way. Not the, not the pre-incarnate eternal son. He's not the image of God. He images God precisely as the incarnate one. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the heir. We'll get back to that in a minute. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's not just the mediator of all things. He's the one in where, in, in where they find their ultimate intent. He sums all things up. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Paul's doing two things here. He is from the beginning in terms of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead in terms of resurrection, in terms of redemption. All things in creation and redemption hold together in him. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? And to dwell bodily so that he can reconcile all things in heaven and on earth in himself. Paul, does, Paul uses two designations here. They're really important to help us understand backwards what's going on in terms of image. Paul says, the true measure of a human is indeed God as human, the human God. In this human God, everything about God has everything to do with humanity in so much as Jesus Christ is truly and fully God in and as that one who's truly fully man. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So let's look at this image of the invisible God first, okay? It's precisely as that fully human son of man that the eternal word is that image of God. He is, the way Hebrews talks, the very imprint of God's nature, the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we talked about that last week, right? To look in the face of Jesus Christ is to perceive and know the fullness of God, not an aspect of God, not one third of God, not a perspective on God, not a vague approximation of God, nothing like that, but the fullness of God. Actually, in a minute, we'll talk about this. Jesus Christ is the fullness of the, the radiance of God's glory. He actually puts God on show. He doesn't obscure God at all. He puts him on show. Vladimir Lasky says this is the great scandal of metaphysics. Jesus Christ participates truly and fully in the life of God and the life of humanity at once. Truly and fully as the God-man. He brings together creator and creation, God and humanity. Is that a bulwark against Gnosticism? <laughs> that which is God is spirit, right? And the physicality, this one who is gets his DNA, his very body from the Blessed Virgin, right? Goes into the tomb and comes out from the tomb and takes the things of earth and penetrates heaven with them. He's that one. He remains God in the heart of the unchanged Trinity and then becomes what he created without ceasing to be who he ever has been. Lasky says that's the scandal of metaphysics. <laughs> course it is, right? So what that tells you is 
what do we need to do in terms of thinking about the world? We need to think about the world in Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't bring conditions, prior conditions, to Jesus Christ that, that allow for the possibility that he might actually be who he says he is. We actually have to understand the world in him. Does that make sense? At the same time, right, um, at the same time as God's deity now and forever includes Christ's humanity, because that humanity is not a tack on, it's not Velcroed on, God's deity forever includes our humanity. Why is that so important? So that, so that you and I can participate as humans in the life of God. Like Peter says, right, we can participate in the divine nature. If, so what we're never saying is, um, I need to somehow overcome, throw off, or transcend my humanity so that I can commune with God. We're made to commune with God as humans in so much as forever and ever, God's deity includes our humanity in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, what that means is Jesus Christ now and forevermore, right, doesn't throw off our humanity at the, at the, at the ascension or anything like that, but forevermore, lives out his divine existence in our human nature as one of us, with us as one of us, God incarnate. He enters the very deepest grounds of our human existence so that we can become, as Peter says, partakers in the divine nature. We don't become deified. That's not the point. We become truly and authentically human as we participate in the communion of the Spirit with Jesus Christ. This is a bulwark against Gnosticism and naturalism in all of its forms. Let me stop there. Do you guys want to say anything? Questions, comments? Yeah. Yep, I'm trying to formulate my question still in my head a little bit, so I'll have to just process it out. Um, so for, for going back half a step to what it means for us to be made in the image of God, mm -hmm. um, uh, are, so can I just ask a clarifying question as I'm formulating? For so are sure. you trying yep. to say, um, or are you trying to say something like, um, are, and I don't mean only like diminutively here, but our image of God is only the case with reference to the incarnation of Christ in his humanity? No, not only the case, but ultimately the case. Okay. Right? Yeah, so, so, so we can say all kinds of things, Sophia, like, you know, so what does that mean if I'm reading Genesis 1 and it kind of, a, you know, here is the context of Genesis 1 and isolated in this context, what does it mean? Well, I see right here I'm to have dominion, right, over, over you know, every living creature and I'm to have dominion. So this kind of functionality to the image or we might say something like, well, we're rational, we're, we're, thought, we're thought creatures, right? Um, and by the way, so is your cat. <laughs> that, that's a differentiation only in kind, or, or I'm sorry, only, in, only a, a, a quantitative difference. It's important that we are, but that's not the only thing. Well, we're emotional, again, so is your cat, so is your dog. If you scold your dog, you're gonna see the tail go between the legs and everything. We're differentiated, certainly. But those aren't, those aren't the big things. The big things are we're embodied, right? We're embodied and we're worshipers. And so we learn to worship 
um, with the embodied God and participate in the mission and life of that embodied God. So we don't, we don't, necess- we don't see that yet in Genesis. Does that make sense? Yeah, that really helps. Thank you. And I think it helps clarify my second question then too, which is um, when trying to answer this question of like, how can we make sense of when there's nothing human about God, how can we make sense of being the image of God? Mm -hmm. I I was wondering what you, I I had it explained to me in a helpful way that we're not trying to talk about shared properties um, between humans and God, but kind of a role that's fulfilled. Properties, not roles, you said? Um, uh, roles, not properties. It's kind of a role that you fulfill rather than a, a property. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's, that's, what, that's what lots would say. But what that tends to do, just try this on, see how, it, see how it wears with you. What that still tends to do is, is it, it, it pictures the incarnation as somehow that Jesus is like the, the head um, and a representative, and he is that. But there's something far more going on, right? So Jesus Christ comes to give us life. So what he's not doing is saying, you know, you already have life. You have this kind of bias life. I want to make it better. That's how we sometimes tend to think, right? If I receive Jesus, my life will be even better. I'll be happy all the day and all these things. He comes to give life of a different order. It's Zoe life, the way the Greek talks, right? We participate, like Peter says, in the divine nature we don't become God, just like in the incarnation, Jesus' humanity isn't, you know, trans, you know, mogrified into divinity. It's not that. Be, it's, it's, it's authentic humanity. That has everything then to do with how we think. We actually participate in the life of God. We participate in the love of God. We participate, um, we would say, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, right, is alive in us. So there's ways... Um, that we would say, Jesus is infinitely other. We're never him, right? He's omnipotent. You're not. I'm not. But, the, but because he is, he shares that with you in so much as the same power that raised him, him from the dead is alive and at work in you. He's actually giving us life. So he's, he's, not, he's not kind of out front of us, isolated from us, and we're trying to emulate him. We're actually participating in him. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, I'm also, <laughs> my, I promise this is my last one. So um, what, how would you distinguish between the way that we do that when we're in Christ and when we're out of Christ so that we both, we have the image of God in both cases? Yeah, oh yeah. So you have the image of God and you can talk, by the way, that doesn't have to be your last one. These are great comments and questions. Um, we have the image of God and are, we are the image of God. Um, by being human, right? Now we're fallen people, right? So when we're fallen people, we don't cease to be the image of God. And boy, you want to handle that. That's got to be so careful in your hands, right? Because as soon as you say that, then you start to say, if to be human is to be image of God and you don't have the image of God, what does that make you? Sub or non-human of some category. Boy, oh boy, we're, humans are great at relieving other, other humans of their humanity and then being monstrous to them, right? You never want to say that. Being human is being God's image, and so we have dignity and significance, you know, as that. But at the same time, would you guys want to say this? We're the image of God. 
whether you're a new creation in Jesus Christ or you're dead in your sin and transgressions, the way scripture describes that, regardless of that, either way, there's no change whatsoever. You would never want to say that. So what's going on here? By the way, that's a, we tend to do stuff like that. And what that actually does is it makes the gospel insignificant. There's all kinds of ways Christians make, relieve the gospel of its mightiness and its beauty and its grandeur and its power. That's one of them. We are God's image, but as fallen people, do we bear God's image? That's quite another question, isn't it? Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a if, if you can talk like this, Sophia, there's, a, there's a, a, a structural, maybe you could say, a constitutional way in which human beings are the image of God, whether they're redeemed or not. But then there's a dynamic, functional way in which Jesus Christ came to restore the image of God in those who are new creations in Jesus Christ, which has, at this point at least, yet to happen here. Does that make sense? So you could say, you know, given what we've, we're looking at, the, the, the forms of worship in the spirit, spirit of the age, do people cease to be worshipers um, as people dead in sin and transgression, like Paul says? Oh, no. We're homo adorans. We're going to worship. We will worship. If we can't find something, we'll make something, right? And it, and it can be, what you guys know, right? It could be Netflix. It could be your career, your calendar, your checkbook, your face, a cheeseburger, because we're foodies, right? We'll worship anything. We're promiscuous like that. What has Jesus Christ come to do? Restore us to authentic homo adoran status so that we worship not only him, but worship the Father in and through him. And what is he doing there? He's completing all God's intent in creation and redemption in himself. Things have become new that way. So we, you talk about evangelism. Sophia, you might want to say something like this. This is part of evangelism. You don't want to believe to become God's image. You want to receive that one who is the true image so you can become and live into that which, that which for which you were, that for which you were made. Does that make sense? So you, you want to live according to the grain of the constitution of the way God made you rather than against the grain. Does that make sense? So kind of that classical category of just like growing into your nature as a thing. Yeah. So think about this. This is, a, this is big stuff that Paul's saying. I'm going to show you how the church speaks about that too. It's big stuff. But if we are a referent, right, if, how did I say it in Genesis 1? If the true measure of a human is God, and we don't take that immediately to Jesus Christ, then there's nothing about our humanity that has to do with that measure. Does that make sense? There's nothing there. So what does it mean to be a human in God's image? Genesis 1 does not answer that. Or, or just starts to get at that, just barely. And another thing that that does is now when we talk about you know, we were humans. We were here before Jesus. And then Jesus became, the second person of the Trinity became human. So then what are we saying? Does he, does he um, correspond to us or do we correspond to him? That's a big, big difference that's going on. So let me press in. Let me say real quickly, Canon Stephen will do a lot of this when he talks about the creeds. But when we talk about what it means that Jesus Christ is human, we're not talking about um, a way in which, you know, the second person of the Trinity threw off his divinity to become human. You know, he used to be God, and now he's human, and so he's not. Um, we're not talking about, you know, a, a, 
a divinity and a humanity that's kind of patched together. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about him who's kind of intermittently human, right? And intermittently God. Like, so when you read the Gospels, for instance, we'll talk about this when we get to the emotions of, of Jesus Christ, but um, when Jesus is fatigued when he talks to the woman at the well in John 4, is that Jesus is God or Jesus is human? Does he have like a little God switch and a little human switch? And is he flicking one on and off or turning one up or down all the time? Who died on the cross? Jesus the man or Jesus is God? Jesus Christ, the person who is the God man. Jesus Christ does divine things humanly and human things divinely. He's that one. Now, why is that so important? In a minute, I wanna talk with you about this. What are Jesus Christ's human emotions? Or what are Jesus Christ's emotions? What do they mean for us? Whose emotions are they? Are they human emotions? Are they divine emotions? How does that help us think about our emotional life? Does that make sense? What do we think about our human bodies in light of Jesus Christ? Is that, is that a human body that's tacked on to God's life? Or can we talk about human embodiedness with real, um, human embodiedness that has everything to do with God's very existence in Jesus Christ. It means everything to how we, can, how we can talk there. This is another thing I want to just put before you as we go. Let me read it. I want to read it because I, I want to say real precise things here. And it's going to have everything to do with what it means for us to be dignified. We, we've talked a, a bit already today about what does it mean to be significant and have dignity and value as a human? We often think that means some form of ascent. And it does, but it involves descent. We see that in, in, the, in, the, in the way in which God is with us and our Lord. The enfleshment of the Lagos doesn't contradict or obscure who God is, as if God were known more fully prior to or apart from his appearing as Emmanuel. For instance, we know God's almighty, now we see the suffering Christ. Is he an obscuration of God's almightiness or does he tell us what it means that God's almighty? Does that make sense? Jesus Christ is the one in whom we see the Father. So he's not, the incarnation is a regressive revelation, it's progressive revelation. Now we can really say some profound things. Um, things that we couldn't have said otherwise. The astonishing act of divine invasion, of progressive revelation, is God's ultimate self-disclosure because Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. He puts, he puts God on show. This isn't about God's self-abdication then. It's about God's self-possession. God's not throwing off his deity to come near us in, his, in that sovereign self-possession of who he is. He comes among us as one of us. Stunning stuff. God's accommodation to our humanness in the fully human Jesus does not diminish his majesty at the least. Now, this is the part that this has everything to do with what it looks like to be a Christian then. What this is, is God's freely chosen way of exalting his divine majesty. God's self-emptying and self-fulfillment are not antithetical, they're identical. Put it this way, Jesus says to Peter, Jesus asked Peter, who am I? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Immediately in Matthew 16, 
Jesus says, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Peter then starts to rebuke him. Crucifixion doesn't seem very dignified on the face of it, does it? Peter says, no way, no way. You are the Christ, but you you will be a crossless Christ for sure. Jesus says, no way. My self-emptying and my self-fulfillment are identical. What's the next thing he says to Peter? Pick up your cross and follow me. If this is the way that God is in Jesus Christ, does this have everything to do with the way that we are? What does it look like for us to put God on show, as it were? Or what does it look like for us to be dignified and significant? It looks like a descent into significance. Does that make sense to you guys? The cross, the cross puts all of our kind of topsy-turviness. Hear how different that sounds to the Humanist Manifesto. The quest for the good life, it's the central quest of humankind, right? Um, The perfection of of the human body, seeking the divine self within of, of Gnosticism. Pick up your cross and follow me. And as you do, descend into greatness with me. Fulfill your mission as an authentic human being this way. And there will be resurrection and there will be ascension, but it, but it follows this, this, right? And this isn't a lack of dignity. It's a moving into our dignity as human beings. Jesus Christ tells us what it means to be a human. And it's not contrary to what it means that God's God. God says, this is the way that I am. And now if you're going to bear my image, this is what it looks like to bear my image. And Peter, of course, says what everyone would all say, apart from this knowledge, that can't be who God is. It just can't be. You can't be um, a, cru- a crucified Messiah. You can't be. That goes against everything that I might assume myself. Jesus says, <laughs> he says more than that, right? That's what Satan just said in Matthew 4, in the temptation. He wanted me to be a crossless Christ too. Now so do you, and by the way, on the day, on Good Friday, part of the taunting is come down from the cross and we'll believe that you, that you are who you say you are. If you're the Messiah, come down, save yourself, right? That's the criteria. This is who God is and God tells us what it means to be an authentic human this way. Jesus Christ being the image of the invisible God is the fullness of deity in whom there is everything human and the fullness of deity who brings to bear that deity upon our humanity so that everything about our humanity has to do with God and everything about God has to do with our humanity. Everything. The the infinite qualitative distinction remains. We never, never become God, but to be authentically human means to participate in the life of God. That's what we were made for. He is, therefore, this logos is the divine logic of humanity. Does that make sense? The divine logos of humanity. The logic of God is the logic of humanity. The logic of God is the only thing that can actually make sense of humanity who bears God's image. Okay, you guys ready? Let's go to that second thing Paul says. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Yeah, man. You need a mic, yeah.
this this question I wanted to uh, I've been kind of writing it out over here, so it's kind of back to the the imitation of Jesus. Uh, that the imitation. Were, yeah, that we're truly human as we imitate Jesus. So um, at Res, we like to celebrate the differences between men and women, mm -hmm. and presumably that would commit us to saying that men and women imitate Jesus differently mm -hmm. according to their maleness and their yep. femaleness. Yep according to their male body and female body. But is there a complication given that God became incarnate as a man? How can a woman imitate God if the only way she imitates God is by imitating the man Jesus? Mm -hmm. Also, she doesn't have an example of God being God as a woman, which again would presumably be different. Mm -hmm. um, she only has the example of God being God as a man. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that has kind of puzzled me and uh, I've listened to some um, feminist theologians who've, uh, I think it was Rebecca Chop who said that if God is male, like in himself, then the male is God. And so these are like questions that yeah. have come I want to save some of those for a little bit. I want to put some, put some things down, but look, it's perfectly fine to get ahead a little bit of that. Jesus Christ assumes a Y chromosome, right? Doesn't he? And it means something. So what we have in, in Genesis is Eve is the mother of all living. Every human being comes from her, right? She comes from Adam, but after that, every human being comes from Eve. When God becomes incarnate, he doesn't, he doesn't um, do an end around with that at all. So the second person of the Trinity takes a Y chromosome, takes his DNA, he receives his humanness from the Blessed Virgin. That's a big deal, right? He um, is conceived in her womb. He, by the way, draws his very human sustenance from her breast. That's a huge thing, right? So what we find is God the Son entering into the male-femaleness distinction but unity, right? Male and female together, he made them. We have it right here. Now, when Jesus comes among us, the first thing we see him doing in the gospels is he's bringing his church to himself, right? He's calling his church. So it's a big deal when we talk about the church as she rather than an impersonal it. One of the things you want to think about here is, does the, does the ministry of Jesus personalize and humanize us? Absolutely. He is true person and true human, and so he brings us into authentic personhood, right? Authentic, not broken, but authentic humanness. He exists with his bride, right? Male and female. He made them. Male and female, he redeemed them. Jesus Christ is one with his bride. And so what Paul does, and boy, we're going to get at some of this, but what Paul does when he's, when he's working through that, he says, Jesus Christ loves and cherishes his body, the church, as his own, because we're flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. Again, this union isn't, it's not a distance like that, right? We're not just thinking about Jesus or we have an emotional attachment or we're believing in him or we're just emulating him. We're emulating him by way of participation. Remember we talked about that last week? The uh, imitatio Christi, which is so important, is rooted in participatio Christi. 
We become imitators of Jesus Christ by being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. The same thing is true in terms of theology and you know, application. Of course you apply, but you apply not at distance, but you apply as you are bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. In the beginning, God made male and female in the image of God. In the new beginning, which is the, 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 the recreation of all things in Jesus Christ, God redeems all things. Christ and his church, male and female. Male and female, he redeemed them. Male and female, he recreated them. <clears throat> and so what we have in Jesus, there's a lot more we can say. But one of the things we have to talk about, and this is huge for our culture, right? Jesus Christ tells us what true categories of humanness are and then what true categories of personhood are, and they're not exactly the same. In Jesus Christ, there's no male or female. Right? Galatians. Now, we would never read that and say, oh, Jesus came to make us all androgynous. Right? He's not obliterating the male and femaleness. He's bringing it into the, the redemptive sphere of his own recreational action. And he's saying, I'm affirming this, and now I'm relativizing it relative to what it means to be an authentic human being in me. What's true of my personhood, Matt, is I, I bear that personhood in a specifically male way, just as you do. <clears throat> What's true of our sisters in Jesus is they bear that personhood in a specifically female way. But that personhood that we bear as male and female isn't the same as a category of humanness. Does that make sense? This is where we, we, we wrestle all the time. Are male and female equal? Is one of them actually better? Are, is one of them more human? Are, you know, different ethnicities more human than other ones? Do they bear God's image more? There's no, there's no Jew and there's no Greek. Is there an obliteration of, of the ethnoi? No, there's an affirmation of the ethnoi. So you can celebrate the ethnoi and you can celebrate gender, sex distinctions relative to the humanness and the personhood of Jesus Christ so that you never elevate them over personhood, but they have a place to flourish where we stop eating and killing one another, which is what we do in modernity. Does that make sense? There's a lot more to be said there, but those are the, some of the things we want to think about is Jesus Christ, we never want to think about him apart from his church. You know what I'd really like to do for you guys? Think about it like this, because we do that easily, don't we? Christ apart from his church. Jesus Christ apart from his church is a, is a, a headless, a, 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 a disembodied head. The church apart from Jesus Christ is a headless corpse. She cannot have life in her because her very life and existence she has with him. Does that make sense? We cannot exist that way. The only way to think about Jesus Christ is with his bride. Now, when Paul does that, this is something I want to get, get at. Um, we'll talk about this in the next section. But one of the things, when he talks about Ephesians 5, he says, this is the mystery, right? I'm talking about Christ and his church. And he says, this is the mystery that's embedded in creation in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become one flesh, bone of bone, with his wife. That's before Genesis 3, isn't it? Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. Why does God make the world as he does? 
so that Christ can come among us. <laughs> we'll talk about that relative to sin, but it's, it's not, Christ doesn't come as an emergency measure. Oh, I made all things through him and by him. I guess now you, they have to meet him, otherwise they wouldn't. The whole world is made so Christ can come among us. And that male-female distinction actually is, is being brought to its fore and, and being clear to us because it's rooted right there. One of the things we have to do as the church is we have, a, we have, a, we have the good news of the gospel there, and this is, th these kinds of things are just huge in our culture. Have you guys noticed? There's no male or female. That's the, the sex issue. There's no Jew nor Greek. That's the ethnoi issue. We call it a race issue lots of times. That's the ethnoi issue. There's no slave nor free. That's the class issue. Nothing new under the sun, is there? Those are the big deals that we, that we struggle with in our culture. And the gospel actually says something about them explicitly and specifically in Jesus Christ. Lydia. Yeah, I just, um, as you're talking about the male-female, the Jew and Greek, I'm wondering if, um, can you expand on the Jew-Greek distinction, the fact that Jesus did come as a Jew, and that's not just an expression of his... Um, specific personhood, but also a connection to the chosen people and, and how that relates with the church. It yeah. seems like that would be a similar yeah. uh, husband, wife, male, female, and then <clears throat> Jewish, uh, Greek connection. God calls a specific people in the nation Israel to himself, right? To be the vehicle. They have a vocation. The vocation is to be a blessing to all the ethnoi. Right? All the peoples of the world, whether they're Swedish and Scottish or Burmese or whatever, all the peoples of the world, we find our fulfillment and our blessing there. Jesus Christ comes as the true keeper of Torah and the true fulfillment of Israel's calling. If you read Matthew's gospel, for instance, again, it's a literary masterpiece. What is Jesus doing? He's fulfilling Israel's vocation. He's, he's the true Israel. As he fulfills Israel's vocation, now he can be a blessing to the entire world so that all the ethnoi can come in and find their place, right? Not in a way that obliterates their ethnoi. Then you can actually celebrate and you can say, this is according to, the, to um, God, the God who loves that kind of diversity, right? And we can celebrate these things, but at the same time, relative to him. Have you guys ever thought about this? This is the blood of Christ right? The cup of salvation. Have you ever thought about this? One of the things that's happening there is he's redevising our bloodlines in his own so that we can never say, I come as this. I'm not only glad and can, can bear this up and be, be glad for it and duly appreciate my own ethnic background and heritage in that story. Mine's better than yours. You can never say that. He's actually re-imaging our very bloodlines in that. We are the family of God. We draw our existence from him. These things aren't obliterated, but they're brought in, they're relativized, relativized, they're affirmed. They're affirmed and then they're relativized in the space of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Makes sense. I'm, I'm wondering about the whole um, Reinstituting re our bloodlines, how does that interact with like Galatians, where there's a very clear distinction between Jew and Gentile, and, the, and there's no space for us to become Jewish if we aren't? Um, like, don't become circumcised if you weren't a Jew before you 
Are, are you talking about like the, the, the broader cultural question? Um, I guess, yes, practically and, and culturally, but, but also just in terms of identity. Um, when, when I receive Eucharist, am I receiving Jesus as a human or am I receiving Jesus as a person, a, a male Jewish person? And is that affecting, like should that affect how I live out my practical Christian life? You're, you're receiving him as the one who is, who is um, resurrected and ascended with all of the continuities of who he is in his personhood, right? So there is, there's specificity there, there's gender specificity or sex specificity, there's um, the specificity of ethnoi. You're receiving him just like that, for sure you are. Now what does it have to do with you? It's, Yes, that's Gosh, <laughs> there, there's, there's no end to the things we might want to say there. Um, maybe we can push in later. But have you guys ever thought about this? What does it look like to have real intimate for a male, right? Because I might come to that different with some different baggage. What does it look like for, for me as a man to have intimacy with another man that's full of full of not only phileo love, you might even say there's a, there's a connotation of eros love, but there's no porneia. It's holy. Do I need to learn how to relate with deep affection to other men? Yeah. Now, what if, what if um, can we say, to, to flip that around, what does it look like to relate as, a, as you, right, who are a, a female? I am not. What does it look like to relate to Jesus Christ in ways that are magnificent and beauty, beautiful and call out my femininity, but there's no porneia there so that I can do that? Because I've got teenagers, and I know you guys probably see that, and you, you live in a little bit different culture than I came up in. When my teenagers think about intimacy, often it's like, ugh, they're scared to death of it, right? And it's all, it's all beclouded with all kinds of cultural baggage. Does Jesus Christ help us do that? I think he does. I think that there's so much there, like a Eucharistic piety that we could bring to the fore. But I think it's this, calling forth, affirming, in terms of gender and all of those things, calling forth, affirming, and relativizing, not dismissing, but relativizing next to itself so that we never let those things become the thing. I can never, I can never say, gosh, what is Jesus? I can't relate to Jesus Christ. I mean, he's Jewish. I'm not. What, is, what does he have to do with me? Now, we do that all the time in our culture. The gospel actually addresses it, all right? I'm, he's male and I'm female. What does that have to do with me? Um, I want to say so much more about gender and sex. Let me just say this. I want to, I want to finish this, but I, this, these are some of the things that we go to them right away in our culture. We're conditioned and catechized to do that. As soon as we hear the gospel, these are the things we bring up. Um, we talk in our culture like this. Sex is biological, and gender is a social construction. Now, if I'm a Gnostic, I can say, my biology is not determinative, right? I want to get to the perfect me, and neo-Gnosticism says those things are in no way determinative. The true me might be something quite contrary to the way in my biological self. Might we say that sex is the biological 
sacramental reality to gender, which is rooted in God's life. We think, we think that gender is a sociological plaything that we can just repurpose to whatever end. Not the case at all. Gender is rooted in God's life. Sex is the sacramental way in which we steward God's life. Does that make sense? Now, of course, we have to be so careful. I'm not going to talk about it now, but then we have to say, is it the case that God transcends the, all of these things? Yes. Is there a sense then that we have to say that there's, there's something, Lydia, about you as a female that has resonance in God's life? That something about you as a female brings to the fore something about who God is? Of course. Of course. Does that make sense? Otherwise, I'd say, well, you know, men bear God's image. Women really don't. God is not, God is not physiologically male <laughs> eternally. Jesus Christ takes, takes the OY chromosome to bring to the fore the way in which male and female ought be in the economy of God's redemption. There's a lot to think about there. Can I go forward just a little bit, though? I want you guys to, I want, I want to make sure you're getting this, because this is super important. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's what Paul says. Now, what does that mean? Not birth order. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about supremacy of status. He said, Paul says, he's before all things. He's the agent and heir of all things. This one, Mary's son, didn't cease to be the eternal Lagos. He is that person. He fashioned the first humans in accord with an anticipation of the divine image that he would become in the fullness of time as the God-man. That is so important. What he didn't do is just inherit a humanity that's already extant and just kind of insert himself there. Otherwise, guess what? He couldn't be the Lagos of humanity. Does that make sense? He couldn't be that. But what he is, in fact, is the ground and interpretive paradigm for a humanity that apart from him, from him is not self-explanatory and never is autonomous. Paul's telling us that that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. As the redeemer of humanity, the way Paul will talk in Romans or Corinthians, he is the second Adam. He's the last Adam, right? The first Adam who is broken and fallen. Jesus Christ is that second Adam. But as a template for humanity, that first Adam is the second image bearer. It's complicated, I know, but that's what Paul's getting at. He's, if we're talking in terms of redemption, he's the antitype of Adam. If we're talking about what it means that he's human, he's the archetype of Adam. Jesus Christ is the pattern of humanity. Now, Lydia, 1 Corinthians uh, 11. We're talking about headship here, right? Kephale. The man is the kephale of the woman. Christ, Paul says, I want you to know this. Christ is the kephale. He's the head of all humanity. And his father, right, is the head of him. So we're talking about a, a cosmic um, way in which we relate to God. But Paul couldn't say that, actually, unless Jesus Christ was the archetype of all humanity. It's exactly what he is. Listen to how Irenaeus says it right at the bottom of this section. He says, in times long past, it was said that man was created after the image of God, but it was not actually, fully at least, shown, for the word was not yet 
for the word was as yet invisible after whose image man was created. When, however, the word became flesh, he showed forth the image truly, since he became himself what was his image. These are the deep things of God, the really deep things of God. But if we don't grasp that, what we'll, what we'll constantly be trying to do is re-image God in our own. Jesus Christ, who inherited a, a, an already extant humanity, he's the one, he's not the firstborn, he's not before and above all things. So he's the one who's malleable and, and can be reconfigured according to us. Paul's saying exactly the opposite there. Does that make sense? Now, let's talk a little bit about this. What kind of time we got? Do I have about 10 minutes? No, what time, what time do I stop? Sophia, do I have about... Oh, you're cutting me off. We started late. <laughs> How do we discern our authentic human face in the face of Jesus Christ, our image? Now, look at, look at this text right here on page 5. You know it probably pretty well. It's 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Sophia, that gets at the issue you were just talking about. From non-image to image? No, not that. From an inauthentic, full and true, but yet inauthentic, broken, marred human image, to an authentic image from one degree of glory to the next is Jesus Christ is forging his very self in us and we're being conformed to him. And Paul says, by the way, look with unveiled face upon him because what you adore is what you're conformed to. If you're Smeagol and you, you know, adore the ring, you become monstrous, right? Does that make sense? What, what, you, what you behold and what captures you is what you're conformed to. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus Christ and knowledge of God being the necessary context and content for knowledge of the self. God revealing God's self and now God revealing ourself. I'll give you a couple quotes here just to let you see, you know, this is the way the church talks. She talks that way because that's the way scripture talks. Augustine in his confession says, let me know thee, O God, let me know myself. What's the way to self-knowledge? Knowledge of God. Pope John Paul, Jesus Christ fully discloses humanity to ourself, right? He does that. I gave you this, this one quote here last week, but I want you to see it again. It's certain, Calvin says, that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he's first looked upon God's face. God's face, how big is that, right? Moses in Exodus 32 says, please show me your glory. I will, but you can't see my face. John 1, we behold, Paul says, or here, Paul says, we behold the very face of God in Jesus Christ. We don't contemplate him from afar, Calvin will go on to say, but we put on Christ, and as we're engrafted into his body, and he makes us one with himself, not theoretically, but really. And as that veil is removed, now we're being conformed to the one in whom we have life and being. And over on the next page, I love this quote. It's so cool. It's so doggone cool. Blaise Pascal. He says, we only know God 
through Jesus Christ. We only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, we only know life and death through Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we can't know, and you see how he keeps adding, we can't know the meaning of our life and death of God or ourselves. What is the meaning of life? Jesus Christ doesn't come to impart some commodified benefit that's extracted from him. He comes to give us life. Why, why were humans made in the first place? To have life in Jesus Christ. Can we, can we know the meaning of life apart from Jesus? Now you guys, let me ask you guys this. You know, you know Pelagianism, right? Is, right? Pelagianism. Do you think that sometimes moderns are, are Pelagians in, in at least this sense, would say, well, of course we need Jesus to be saved, but we can know life apart from him. We can know the meaning of life apart from him. Pascal says, are you kidding? That's, that's the very thing we cannot do. Life is bound up in him. He's the giver and the bestower of it. We were made for him. You know, back to Augustine, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. But he says even our death, right? We can't know the meaning of our death. What does it mean to live in such a way as to live in sin and, sin and transgression, to be dead in that? Jesus illumines that. I'm the light who comes into the darkness of the world. You might not have even known there was a problem. <laughs> you might have been real self-content. Here's your problem. You discern it in my face. You were made for me and must have life in me. That's what the gospel does, by the way, right? Um, but even for us, one out of one people die. Isn't that right? What do I need to know when I'm gasping for my last breath? Jesus Christ has preceded me in death. He's taken not the grief out of it, but the horror out of it, the sting out of it. I can only know the meaning of what's happening to me right now in Jesus Christ, Pascal says. How's that for bedside pastoral, you know, etiquette and, and, and oomph? The meaning of the death of the saints in Jesus Christ is a blessed and beautiful thing, actually. Not the way it's supposed to be, but Jesus Christ is transforming something. Now, what has it become? Him having preceded you in it, your death is now your, your transition into glory. Pascal says, how could you ever know that apart from, apart from Jesus Christ? What you would be more tempted to say is what Mark Twain says, where I pass, you know, the only gift, unpoisoned gift the light this, this world's ever given me, I've just passed from it as a foolishness and a failure. You can only know the meaning of your life and your death in Jesus Christ, says Pascal. It's really, really profound stuff. So let's talk about this in a couple of ways. What does he do? What does Jesus Christ do? He binds his very self to our very self so that as we learn ourselves, we don't learn ourselves in isolation. The self, you know, curved in on the self and the self in some, you know, utterly non-communal way, non-Trinitarian way. Um, we're trying to discern ourselves in isolation from God and maybe even isolation from the other. A broken self, by the way. Jesus Christ invades that area, holy invasion, and opens up our life so that we discern ourself relative to his self. Does that make sense? Our self is in an isolated self, certainly not isolated from God and certainly not turned in upon ourselves. We have, what you might say, a really broken relationship with ourselves. Have you guys noticed? 
we tend to be we tend to be the cruelest people we'll ever meet, right? The, the most lies you'll probably ever hear from anybody is you. There's that sense of, you know, when, when, the, when the relational ecosystem of the world breaks, God and man, humanity from one another, there's something inside of us that happens too, right? And so we're, we're alienated even from ourselves. The Lord comes to not only mediate God and man and us to us, right? He's the ground of our fellowship. Jesus Christ then mediates us to us, a true self to ourself. And he does this by opening up our curved inness so that we discern our face in his face. That's what's going on in the life of the church. It's just magnificent, magnificent. We can talk about that if you guys want to, but a couple other things I want to talk about really quickly is this. Your emotional life how do we discern ourselves, our authentic selves in Jesus Christ? Are Jesus Christ's emotions human emotions or divine emotions? You read in the scripture, right? Jesus, Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He's also joyful. He's jolly. Does Jesus get vexed? Does Jesus get angry? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is distressed. Can you, can you stay up and be near me for one hour? You know, I'm going to drink to the dregs, the chaos and disorder of the world in the morning, and I'm just a little bit upended by it, right? <laughs> just a little bit. Are those divine emotions or human emotions? Now, if Jesus Christ is the one who is truly, fully God, is truly, fully man, is he, does he manifest to us divine emotions humanly? Now, what does that mean for our emotional life? Have you guys ever thought like this? I'll bet you have. Now that I'm a Christian, I don't get angry anymore. Or I feel just a little guilty if I feel disappointed or vexed or frustrated and so on and so forth. Does our redemption mean, if you, if you will, like a, a shrinkage of the span of our emotional life? Do we, do we have, like, these are good emotions or these are bad emotions? Don't we tend to think like that? How about this? All of our emotions, um, it's not that they're good or bad. They can be improperly, sinfully expressed, even love, by the way, right? Our love needs to be sanctified as much as our contempt does. And there's a place for contempt for sure, right? Think about the psalmist. Lord, haven't I hated my enemies with perfect hatred? Right? Haven't I done that? Meaning this, it's not whether or not I will, but why I do, how I do, to what end that I do. Love and hate, for instance, are cognates. They grow up in the same, they, they're, they're, they're creatures of the same womb. We tend to say in our culture, oh, we would never say that we hate. Tell me, tell me what you love. They're going to go together. They, they, they interpret one another. Does that make sense? That's a way that is diminishing and undermining our humanity. If you live east of Eden in this world as, as, a, as a son or daughter of the Father in Jesus Christ, and you can't find some things that you have just holy contempt for, I want you to talk to me after. <laughs> I don't know how you would do it. Does that make sense? The whole of your emotional life is, be, is to be conformed to Jesus Christ. It doesn't shrink. It actually grows and deepens. 
Does that make sense? Our Lord is telling us something about the effective life of what it means to be human and the ways in which we bear the image of God. We do it humanly, and Jesus Christ is showing that to us, and it's just glorious. Let me say this last thing. Our Lord's human body, he receives a body, right? A whole humanity, but <laughs> elemental to that is his body. What does the body of Jesus tell us about our bodies? Any truly Christian theology of bodies has to be calibrated by that most important, we can say the most real of all bodies, the body of the second person of the Trinity. The body of the second person, the second person of the Trinity has a body and always will forevermore. He dignifies our bodies. Think about Gnosticism again. He dignifies our bodies and he calibrates human embodiedness embodiment to himself. He does that. Our bodies and the body of the church are rightly understood only in terms of his body. Think about what we do with an ecclesiology when, when Jesus is a head that's removed. You know what the church becomes? An it, and she becomes a global um, corporation or something like that. She becomes a business. She's not the body of Jesus, the, the embodiment is sorely undermined. Jesus Christ's body is the criterion for distinguishing real from non-real, fanciful notions of bodies. All, there, all that's real about our bodies derives from and depends upon the reality of his body. Super important. We can say a whole lot about his body, but one of the things we'd want to say is Jesus Christ's body is individual and communal. We take, we take the supper, right? His body's communal and it's individual. There's no mutual exclusion here, none at all. Our Lord's individuality is rooted in his community. First, in the communal reality that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we then discern that Jesus Christ is the Son, that individual who is the Son, in holy community? Does that make sense? His particular personhoods recognize precisely as he, as he participates bodily in the life of God and the life of humanity. How do we discern the incarnate son? As he participates bodily in the life of his father and comes on mission to reveal that. How do we, how do we, how do we learn um, what the church is and who he is relative to the church? As he participates bodily in our life and us in him. Jesus Christ's body is the son of God and the son of Mary. True and full image of God is true and full image of man. I'm going to read a little bit of this. So, there is but one truly authentic existence and aim for our bodies, as Scripture tells us. In the body of the church, in that life-giving, life-transforming communion of the embodied Jesus Christ, we are to grow up in every way into the head. In every way into the head. Into Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together in every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our embodied existence finds its, finds its terminus in, in growth into and up into the head in the body of Jesus Christ. The domain of authentic human existence is life in the church. Does that make sense? 
Christ's body tells us that authentic embodiment is individual and communal, and that individuality is situated and exercised and discerned in real community. What it also does is that it demythologizes the part of the spirit of our age, which is individualism and collectivism. Hear that. Individuality, individualism. They're not different by degrees. They're apples and oranges. Community, collectivism. Does that make sense? We talk a lot in our culture about what it means to have identity, right? What it means to be a human person. And we talk a lot about community. The gospel allows us to just root that, root it right in the very life of Jesus Christ. His embodied existence is individual and communal. Individualism falsely invests us with an autonomy and a self-sufficiency that grounds our identity in our own name in our own will, in our solitary self. And so what it does is it destroys real community or the possibility of it because it denatures real identity. Do you guys see that? What I want you to see is how these stand and fall together. An affirmation of individualism destroys not only real individuality, but the prospect of real community. Collectivism, you know, where the individual has to go away, right? The individual is, is obscured and, you know, um, washed over by the collective good. Collectivism falsely divests us of actual place and value, grounds the self, the individual, in tribalized structures so that our personal realities, our, our personal individual self is eclipsed by the name and will of identitarian groups and movements. At least that's the way it looks in our culture. Collectivism destroys real individuality because it first denatures real community, and those two stand and fall together. Does that make sense? The gospel of Jesus and the, the reality of his embodiment speaks to those massive prevailing issues that we live in all the time. We feel them all the time. The self surrounded by the self, the self, you know, in terms of like self-pronunciation and self-enunciation, the self curved in upon itself. The embodied reality of Jesus um, speaks to that and what it looks like for us to live in communion with one another without, without that being just fractured and tribalized. Jesus Christ um, speaks to that and Jesus Christ, who is one with his church, does that. Individual and communal aspects of authentic embodiment stand or fall together because Jesus Christ is their true ground. Despite their differences, individualism and collectivism are similar in the most momentous ways. Both are ultimately groundless because both contradict the reality of Christ's body. He's the interpretive paradigm of what it means to be a human being. They contradict the reality of his body. Individual human bodies are made to image Christ as living members of the community and an individual church. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to read. You can read that. But that goes, to, that goes with the church, too, right? There's no such thing as an individual church that finds itself, you know, looking at other local churches as competition. That's not what the church looks like. There's no such thing as authentic stewardship of human embodiment that does that with other people. Individuality, yes. Individualism, no. Community, yes. Collectivism, no. Does that make sense? Okay, talk to me for just a minute. Do those things resonate with you? I think those are some of the big things we struggle with um, culturally. Yeah? 
not a question, just a comment that I really appreciate the distinction that you're drawing between um, like community and collectivism um, and thinking about how the gospel is applied or manifests in other cultures. Sometimes I felt like it's difficult for us as an individualistic culture to know how to be in community, um, but this gives me a lot of hope for the application of the gospel even in cultures that are not necessarily primed for collectivist um, ways of life. I mm -hmm. think I, I've tended to kind of be a little bit, um, like lament the, the fact that our culture is, is so individualistic and that's something that we have to watch. Um, but I appreciate just, uh, language is so important and I think this distinction is a really good one to make. Oh good, I'm glad, I'm glad. Re real I-ness is so important, isn't it? And you see that even, I, come in the name of the Father. I only know myself relative to the Father. I am the, I am the Son, that very title, right? What does it connote and suggest? I am the Son of the Father. And I have real, individu real individuality that way and real authority that way in terms of mission and so on and so forth. Sophia. I was just curious if you have a sense of like, what naturalism and Gnosticism are looking like in our current age in more collectivist societies, since this was like a very like Western individualistic way of looking at those two philosophical underpinnings. Yeah, we're, um, okay. That is a little bit off yeah. since we're talking about it. But. These things are so fun because our, our culture is so, so um, dynamic, right? But I think what you're finding, and you guys see it all the time, is a type of, um, a type of tribalized collectivism, right? And so, so, so when, you know, what it means to be a human being gets fractured. And by the way, most modern thought denies the existence of something called humanity. There's nothing called humanity. As soon as you do that, then what do you have that, that is in its place? Sex, gender, ethnic identity, so on and so forth, or whatever. But what will happen to our cultures, it just gets fractured and then we'll say, my, not only is my truth here, um, but I, I live and speak and act in profoundly collectivist ways within this tribe. Does that make sense? Um, I think you guys, we'll talk more about that because we, we're going to do a three-part series um, in November that, that'll entail a whole bunch of these things. But as you go out, Sophia, I get the sense that you're doing lots of evangelism and things like that. Are, are these some of the things that you find right away? Um, kind of. I mean, I, I was thinking more because I grew up in South America, which is sort of just like culturally much more um, collectivist. Um, so I was thinking about like, okay, now that we're more globalized, naturalism and Gnosticism and all of those Western philosophies are hitting more collectivistly inclined society. So I'm, I'm wondering how those things like manifest differently and where the dysfunctions are. Let's take a break. Sound good?